Hi, Ching, how are you? I hope I'm saying your name right. Um, the unmute button is all the way on the bottom right hand. There should be a little microphone symbol and there you can unmute. Can you hear me? Um, hey, Kirko. Hey, Manas. Hey, Jared. How are you? Hi, Kirko. What's up? How are you doing today? Good, good. Thank you. I have to figure out. Yi Ching, can, can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, then uh, maybe uh, let me ask in the chat. Okay. Uh, can you unmute? If not, sometimes it helps uh, to just come back to the room if the unmute button doesn't work. Um, or maybe switch from Wi-Fi to cellular data or the opposite. Sometimes the first time using the app, um, it's kind of buggy. We recently learned that. So if you want to come back, like uh, restart the app, then hopefully it works then. Good morning, friends. Does everyone have their audio functioning? Hi, I am the speaker. Can hear us or not? Um, uh -huh. She said she's still figuring it out, um, but um, I'm not sure if she can hear us. Or, if, or she can if she maybe can't unmute, but then it would maybe help Have you tried, um, do I pronounce your name Yishin? I guess you can't speak. Maybe leave and come back if you're not able to unmute. That's often helpful. But good morning, Katarina. Good morning, Kirko. Yeah, we hear you. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out um, how to use this, but since I can work, perfect. <laughs> great. Uh, yeah, sounds great. And we still have around five minutes, so um, we, we still have some time. How's your Saturday going? Everything good? Yeah, it's perfect. Thank you so much for inviting us. Yeah, no, thank you so much for coming. It's, a, it's an honor having you. So you you recently started working for Neuralink or? Um... Yes, I actually started um, eight months ago. So I finished my defense on um, February and I just joined the company um, right after I finished my defense. So 
yeah, it's on uh, February. It's been a while. <laughs> oh, okay. <clears throat> yeah. To be exciting. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's really exciting. It's it's a really good company. So much fun and a lot going on in the company. And yeah, and I think we will have a, an event, a recruiting event, actually, like um, end of the month. Um, so, so yeah, <laughs> if anyone um, in the clubhouse, in, in the room chat is interested, um, super welcome to join. Um, yeah, I'm oh, trying nice. to... By my colleague, um, Major is supposed to come. I don't think he joined the room yet, so let me just try to um, talk to him. Just one second. Okay. Okay, yeah, just got in touch. Okay, yeah, he's here. Nice. Oh, hi. How are you? Um Ming Tang, I hope I'm saying your name right, and I uh, hope you can hear us. And if you can, the unmute uh, button is all the way on the bottom right hand. There should be. Oh, I think he he maybe pressed the wrong button. Let's see. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, should be back in any any minute. In the meantime, uh, feel free everyone to share the room with people you think that would be interested. And um, we will start in around two minutes. So um, yeah, will be a really interesting and exciting room. Um, so. Um, uh, do you think he will manage by himself to come back or let me see if I can find him here on Clubhouse to invite? Yeah, let me ask him quickly. Oh, I already pinned him in. So, let's see. If not, I can. Should I share the link again in the email? Maybe. 
Hi, Denise. How are you? Hi, everybody. Doing great. Really excited for this talk. Oh, yeah. Also, I should share the paper link in the chat. I just talked to uh, Minjin. I think he will join in a second. Sure. Yeah, we we have we are not. It's it's weekend. Happy weekend, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Happy weekend. Ah, there you are. How are you? Um, so to uh, unmute, it's all the way on the bottom right. There should be a little microphone symbol. Yep. Hello. Hey. Yeah. Perfect. Hey. Can That's hear you. Now. <laughs> yeah. Right on time. Yep, right on time. Um, we'll start in a minute. I hope everyone is doing well, having a great weekend. And um, yeah, uh, I'm so happy that you both could make it. That's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting us. Um, I actually never used a clubhouse before, so it's a new experience for me. <laughs> Well, wonderful. Uh, I'm glad. Uh, you, I hope you'll enjoy it. <laughs> Let's not be... Yeah, since I hear a lot of talk um, in um, science society, so it's, it's just nice that uh, I can uh, listen to other people's talk too. So it's a great platform. Yeah, I saw you. Thank you for coming. Um, I saw you in another room the other day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's nice. <laughs> it's interesting. Okay, I think we can slowly start. Uh, probably people will keep coming in, but uh, we'll start with introductions and so on, and then we'll go from there. So welcome everyone to Science Society today. And of course, a special welcome to Yi Ching and Ming Seng. I hope I'm saying your names right. Please correct me if I'm wrong. And um, uh, let me give uh, the audience a short introduction about you. And we'll go from, and then usually Victoria asks a couple of interview questions, if that's okay with you. Um, and then um, the stage is yours for presenting your really cool and interesting um, research. So um, uh, Dr. Yi Ching Wu, she, um, when she did this work, she was at the, part, at the Department of Material Science and Engineering at um, the Query Simpson Institute for Bioelectronics at Northwestern University. And um, that's also where she got her PhD. And uh, she did her bachelor's degree at the Tsinghua University uh, and she did it in material science and engineering. And um, Dr. Ming Teng Wu, uh, he did his PhD at Yevgenia uh, Kudzorovsky um, 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 Assistant Pro Associate Professor of Neurobiology and um, in the Department of Neurobiology, also at Northwestern University. And now he is a postdoc in Dr. Uh, John Rogers lab at Northwestern University. Um, yeah, 
and congratulations for this um, amazing paper and thank you for being here and victoria the stage is yours for your questions thank you Thank you, Katarina. And so wonderful to hear about your work, uh, Yijin and Mingjin. And please um, correct me, help me pronounce your names correctly. We are. Yes, pardon, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I'm just saying the pronunciation is perfect. <laughs> okay, <laughs> wonderful. Thank you. So, in addition to the work that you're about to present, it would be fantastic to learn a little bit of background about you both and learn about that background as well, because we're interested in science through people, where Science Society is about bringing science to people and also exposing our, our guests as scientists to people. Um, as real people, so we can hear what interests you. And so my question is, if you can think back through your life about a, a time when maybe you first noticed that you had a particular interest in science, then we would love to hear about that. And that could be in your childhood or, or during schooling or from a parent or anything that, that just comes to mind that's something that connected you. Um, I think I can start. <laughs> this is a really good question. Um, so for me, if now I look back into like my life when I was a child, I just like I was really interested in uh, detective stories. So I just hope like uh, like honestly, as a, as a child, I just hope I can be a detective and just solve crime problems and stuff like that. But um, but it turned out that I'm a scientist now, so probably like different choices um, of my careers at this moment. But yeah, I think that will be the starting points where I feel like I'm just interesting and in figure out problems and uh, trying to solve problems. And then um, I got into like um, math, um, chemistry and physics when I was in uh, middle school. And it's just so interesting that it's kind of like playing games, solving problems and I don't know. I just feel like it's it's just so much fun to solve a problem and um and just figure out what's what's exactly going on. And science is it's it's all all about like asking questions, answering questions, and and find out a solution. And and I think that's basically um the starting um where I I feel like I'm so interested in science and um and that's yeah if that's the question, but. But there's just like totally another story where I uh, feel like I'm interested in um, in more like medicine, medical devices, and for that, um, it's it's more um, about uh, my family's and um, my grandpa um, died early when I was in um, in middle school and um, um, because of cancer. So um, at the time, um, because of that, I because I already interested in science and. I just have um, an urge to um, to to study more uh, medical parts of the science. So in that case, I can can help people. Um, I can um, save people. So so yeah. So that's basically why. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for for the extra detail. And it's it's really interesting to hear that you started out wanting to be a detective and then how you applied that curiosity towards science and and through your tragically i'm sorry that you lost your grandfather to cancer and and 
you've used that experience though to to motivate you in medicine and to solve problems there and um so thank you for that answer and and ming jen the mic is yours yeah um i was actually a medical student at the beginning so I, i'm not on the uh, scientific trajectory but i think like during my intern time uh like in china like in, during my internship in the hospital i saw there are a lot of patients suffer from like pain and like some emotional suffering but the problem is that the therapeutics are like not sufficient to manage their pain and sorrow so that motivated me to become a scientist instead of like being a physician so i think after that i joined uh, a lab uh, whose focus is on neuropathic pain so like during my undergraduate research, I like was focusing on the mechanism of neuropathic pain and uh, the mechanism of uh, morphine dependence. Uh, morphine is uh, most used therapeutics for neuropathic pain these days, but there are a lot of side effects, uh, physical dependence, and uh, potentially addictive to many patients. So I was studying that mechanism and trying to uh, minimize the, these side effects and trying to develop more like therapeutics. Uh, that's what I did in my undergrad. Uh, so and from that experience, I think I should uh, pursue a PhD degree uh, potentially in the US. So I uh, was here. Uh, I, I enrolled in uh, Northwestern University and joined uh, Janus Lab where I start, like, I, I switch to the field of neurobiology and the mechanism of uh, emotional suffering, like, for example, mood, mood disorder, uh, like depression and bipolar disorders, and I want to know the mechanism of, the, of them, and study, I studied, uh, like, really promising rapid antidepressant, which is ketamine that it works really fast, and, like, a single dose of ketamine can have the antidepressant effect for like a, uh, a long period like approximately two weeks so that's really promising but we do not know the mechanism of it and my thesis research was focusing on uh, ketamine's antidepressant effect and we found that it's actually the dopaminergic modulation like in the major prefrontal cortex and the synaptic plasticity was involved in ketamine's antidepressant effect. And I think during my thesis research, I also started the collaboration uh, with the Rogers lab and with Yixin. And I realized there this new technology are really promising to uh, manage, like they have like a lot of potential to manage uh, the these relatively chronic uh, like mood disorders and other neuropsychiatric disorders. Uh, so I decided to like switch my discipline again like from neurobiology to that uh, entire engineering world, trying to find some solution to these like global health burden in the society. I think that that's it. Yeah, thank you, Mingjing. And thank you for it for the detailed journey as well. 
it's um, the thought process when you're changing paths and determining direction, it's challenging to leave one and, and go toward another. And, and I'm, I'm, um, it's very moving to hear how much you're motivated by the desire to, to address emotional suffering. And, and as you said, to learn the mechanisms behind that. And I, it's, it's, it's a common thread, um, both of both you and, and, Yijin are talking about how how compassion is a driver in in your research toward finding answers to help people. So at this point, I would like to pass the mic back to both of you for the rest of the room, and and you can go into your discussion. And then we, uh, the moderators, are here to assist for when you have questions, um, perhaps you'd like to have a Q&A following your discussion, then we can moderate that. And sometimes guests in the audience will put questions in the chat for you, and we can share that with you as well. So um, at this point, thank you so much again for being here, and the mic is yours. Thank you so much. Yes, we're so honored to be here uh, and share um, our recent paper uh, that's published in uh, NatureCom. And um, I think so basically for uh, the agenda here, um, I'll just talk a little bit more about the, the backgrounds of uh, this paper and uh, introduce um, technical parts of the paper and then uh, Minjun will go into the animal experiments uh, with this um, the systems that we built. So so yeah, so um, I think I can, I can just get started um, with the background. Um, I think everyone has on the slides already. Um, so if you can open the slides and we can get started uh, with the first slides. Okay, yeah, hopefully everybody opened the slides already. So, so yes, so, um, so I'll start with the background. Um, so implantable devices um, have been used for neuromodulation to cheat a variety of diseases such as depressions, uh, Parkinson's or chronic pain and uh, the desire to study implantable devices with multiple stimulation models um, had grown due to the early experiments which showing that stimulus uh, can be therapeutic. So for example, um, on the right, um, electrical stimulation, on the right of the slide, electrical stimulations um, have been shown to minimize the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Um, and recent studies have attempted to combine stimulation therapies with sensing to monitor the therapeutic process. So the simultaneously device considerations have moved towards um, low modulus materials, wireless operation, lightweight design, uh, etc. So if we can move to the next slides. Of the various combined stimulation therapies that I just mentioned, um, optical and pharmacological uh, has exceptionally interesting property. This is because light um, is a fundamentally orthogonal physical stimulus to normal brain function. Therefore, um, if neurons or drug molecules desire to become light sensitive, the off-target effect is very small. So light sensitivity can be introduced uh, using two different pathways. Um, the first one is optogenetics, involves uh, introducing a virus which forces the cells to express uh, membrane protein which are light sensitive. Um, these group of membrane proteins, um, while you turn opsins, 
are then uh, illuminated, which alter the ability of the neurons to experience an action potential. And this, um, this um, highly targeted chemical optical stimulation can therefore promote or regulate synapses in a group of neurons. And uh, in contrast, optopharmacology involves a more simple concept um, of introducing compounds which is degraded upon light, light illumination and um, it will release cargo materials um, that can alter membrane protein, which also alters the neural function. So general process for introducing light sensitivity to the brain is by injecting uh, either a virus or um, a drug into the brain, connecting to a fiber optic table for light uh, stimulation and then monitor um, animals' behavior as a result. Optogenetic stimulation has shown to be effective to minimize the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Okay, so let's move to the next slide. With this in mind, um, unfortunately, the previous tools for optofluidic stimulations are somewhat lacking. Um, large syringe pumps and tubes or laser system um, and long optical fibers are typically necessary for drug delivery and for optical stimulation, respectively. This large and steep cannula and fiber, um, as well as the physical fetters, um, actually damage the brain tissue, um, as well as prevents observation of animal, animals' nat natural behaviors. Recent advances in, um, in wireless optogenetics open up new opportunities for optogenetics. However, um, parallel optical and pharmacological modulation are still lacking. Okay, so if we move to the next slide, based on this logic, um, a wire-free optofluid device and materials must be carefully designed to solve these challenges. Um, this also according to the materials paradigm, uh, since I'm a materials engineer, <laughs> and um, we decide which structure and processing steps are necessary based on the final materials performance. The device um, basically consists of four components. Um, firstly, the fluidic package, which applies a pressure gradient to induce fluid flow in a consistent manner, um, must be small, lightweight, uh, require low power, and remain bar compatible. The probe carries the drug delivery and light stimulation properties. Uh, materials must be compliant, yet able to penetrate the brain uh, while localizing the drug and optical stimulation. The power supply must re remain light lightweight, um, while small and provides sufficient power. Ideally, the control system will allow the greatest degree of programmability possible. If we'll move to the next slide, beginning with the pump, various pump strategies are possible, but um, the basic operation typically involves an actuator, which applies a force on a diaphragm, and the diaphragm um, made from flexible materials um, then deform, and therefore pressure gradients develops within the drug reservoir. Uh, inducing fluid flow towards outlet. Various previous arts have been developed, such as uh, peristaltic pump, uh, peristaltic pump, and thermally activated pump. Uh, but these pumps are either heavy or bulky uh, or require high voltage, high temperature operation, uh, which are not ideal for a miniature implantable system for virus or drug delivery. So then, um, if we can move to the next slides to solve the previous challenge. Um, I present this electrochemical pump. Um, it consists of interdigital electrodes, which can generate oxygen and hydrogen species 
based on electrolysis reaction um, shown on the left top follows over here. So the virus or drug um, and electrolytes are firstly loaded in the drug reservoirs and pump chamber. After initiation of the pump, electrolysis reaction happens and the gas build up um, within the pump chamber or applies a force on the flexible membrane, which pressurizes the drug reservoir on top to enable fluid flow through the microfluidic outlets. This device um, is capable of low power operation while maintaining a very low temperature change, with both chambers uh, remaining below the body temperature of mo most mammals, which, which is um, favorable in delivering virus and temperature-sensitive drug. So if you can move to next slide. After developing pump, I build this multilateral optofluidic system integrating the pump with the serpentine interconnects for spatial flexibility and easy implantation. And the multi-components neuroprobes consist of microfluid channels for drug delivery and micro-LED for optical stimulation. A microfluidic bulb is also built for uh, flow modulation. Um, the photos and details fabrications of microfluidics uh, are actually included in the back of slides. The device is powered by near-field communication protocols uh, which take advantage of magnetic resonant coupling between the device antenna and the emitted uh, radiation room, uh, emit, emitted radiation cage from the RF module. With um, my colleague Abraham's help, we developed the circuitry and uh, user interface for real-time programmable control over micropump and micro-LEDs and the wireless micro, um, the wireless uh, multilateral, multimodal platform creates unique options for various modes of operation for new modulation. So from here, I'll hand over to um, Minjin to talk about a different operations of the device and how it applies to animal experiments. Uh, I think before I uh, go into details, I'll introduce a little bit uh, motivation from the biology side. Um, as you know, the optogenetics and pharmacology, uh, they're really useful in neuroscience research and they're really powerful. But the problem of the conventional approaches of optogenetics and uh, in vivo pharmacology is that they're externally like tethered with the uh, fiber optics or like fluidic deliver like fluid deliver channels. They need to connect the amnon like to some external power source or like drug delivery source, and it really affects the naturalistic behavior of those animals. For example, if you have uh, multiple animals in the same cage and all of them are tethered with some like external cable, they will not uh, like engage in social interaction with each other. So if you want to study social behaviors uh, with optogenetics and these tools, it's going to create a, a huge confounding factor uh, to the interpretation of the results. So that's, I think that's our uh, initial motivation to make this technology wireless so that we can uh, like put a really small device on top of those animal and they can like socially interact with each other like normally. And even though if you have some uh, like complex 
environmental setup, they can move in that setup like freely without any physical constraint from the, the externally tethered cable. So that's our motivation, but there are like some previous published study of the wireless platform. Um, they're, I mean, they're, they're very nice and wireless, but the, I think the form of those previ previously published platform, it's still uh, like, it's, it's still relatively large compared to the size of uh, ammo, especially for mouse. It's like like putting a bowling ball on top of the ammo's head. So we want to like uh, reduce the size of this platform. So we get rid of the battery and we use the uh, uh, RF power, uh, to power this device. That that way we can only use a small receiving coil, like for those devices, and give the power like get the power from the radio frequency from the uh, antenna uh, outside the animal's uh, behaving behaving cage. So that's some background, and in this case, we also upgrade the system by introducing the uh, near field communication uh, system that we can uh, update the parameter of the light stimulation and the drug delivery in a real time manner. That way, we can we will have a lot of combination of the uh, operation to study animal behaviors when using these devices. For example, if, if you can see a uh, slide silent, so we can op operate uh, a single channel at each time. We can operate different LEDs uh, targeting different brain regions, and we can operate different fluidic channels to deliver different types of drugs in multiple brain regions simultaneously or separately. So by doing that, we uh, first we need to validate this technology is actually working in uh, animal behaviors. So we came up uh, with a like, really simple behavioral paradigm that where we can activate the secondary motor cortex to generate the rotational behavior of the animal. So the way we did that is we preload some uh, virus solution that's uh, encode channel adoption uh, in the wireless uh, optofluidic device, and we can deliver channel adoption virus into the secondary motor cortex. And after a few weeks later, when channel adoption expressing in this uh, parameter neurons in motor cortex, we can give blue light stimulation to drive the rotational behavior. Uh, so that attempt was successful, and another reason we choose for rotational behavior is that we can reliably quantify the degree of the uh, like ro rotational behavior and the speed uh, and the amplitude, and it can be easily observed by like by visual inspection, I would say, so we will know, uh, we will know if the device is working as soon as we start the stimulation. And as mentioned before, uh, a very important functionality introduced in this new platform is that we can uh, control the parameters in a real-time manner, we can, and we can combine the operation of uh, drug delivery with the optogenetic stimulation.
So it means that it opens the possibility of a new field of research, which is the photopharmacology. That we first we can deliver some photoactivatable drug, uh, or like, and then we can use light to change the conformation of that drug and to make the drug uh, 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 active to the neuronal group that we are targeting. So we can use the light to control the. We can we can use light to control the uh, function of that delivered drug, and thereby we can manip manipulate the activation of receptors on these neurons, uh, like near high temporal, near relatively high temporal resolution. So the first thing, so we 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 want to try is we used the. A blue light uncaged neurotransmitter, so uh, it's called ruby glutamate. So if it received the uh, 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 receive the uncaging light, uh, single photon blue light, it will release the glutamate, which is an important neurotransmitter from the caging group, and it will act on the neurons and modulate the activity of these neurons. And we also validate did some in vitro experiment to, to validate this approach is actually working. So I used some uh, uh, e-phase recording of the parameter neurons and applied the uh, ruby glutamate uh, to the to the bath. And after we gave the light blue light stimulation, we can evoke some post-synaptic excitatory post-synaptic current that can be blocked by glutamate receptor, which means this compound is actually working. So then we can uh, infuse the ruby glutamate in the secondary motor cortex, and we can use blue light from the device to uncage ruby glutamate to activate the neurons in the secondary motor cortex. And if we do that, we can generate a significant rotational behavior. But without the light stimulation or without the ruby glutamate, uh, uh, delivery, we won't generate any rotational behavior, which means that uh, this approach is working. And a really promising thing of this uh, technique is that we don't, so we have a lot of different type of uh, caged uh, neurotransmitter. For example, we have caged dopamine, caged uh, like neuromodulator, for example, caged oxytocin, so we can use this approach to study the uh, function of those neurotransmitters and neuromodulators uh, in a really precise way. And finally, uh, another thing enabled by this platform is that we can study social behaviors. We can control up to um, 256 devices in the same in a single field, although we don't need uh, that much, like that many animals to study social behaviors, but it's just demonstrate that we can do a lot of more things than the platform published in previous studies. And Yixin, uh, do, do you like to summarize here, or I can go ahead and summarize. 
Um, yes, yeah. Thank you so much, Minjun. Um, so, so yeah. To summarize, uh, we build a system. Uh, this wireless optical system that can allow real-time programmable control uh, with various operation modes, and we also demonstrate in vivo uh, of the capability of our platform uh, by optogenetics, uh, optopharmacology, and integrating optogenetics on frequently. Nice. So, so yeah. Um, so this is our talk. Thank you so much. Um, we, we, we're open to any questions. Yeah, thank you so much, Yiqing and Mingzeng. Um, this is really amazing. Uh, also, especially that you use uh, all, that you are making all these different caged components. I keep telling people to do that. And you're the, we, when I was in George Augustine's lab at Duke, we had the postdoc, she would make all kinds of caged components but um in other labs that's really not <clears throat> used that much but it's so useful right to have this temporal and localization so it's really exciting did do you have maybe first results with using caged oxytocin caged dopamine or or are you what are you planning to use it for i would imagine caged oxytocin would be really interesting to look in um, autism models for example because we know that um, there's like a difference there in oxytocin um, levels and receptors um i think uh, yeah uh, i can uh, explain a little bit on that so uh, the, the reason why people uh, develop all these caged neurotransmitter neuromodulator is that uh, for conventional pharmacology, they just deliver dopamine or oxytocin uh, into the brain regions. Then, and, and the action of these uh, compounds, they're, they're constant, constantly on, but it's not the case uh, for the real brain system. So in basically in brain, these oxytocin and dopamine they are released in a pulsed manner. So they're not like con like like release a whole lot of oxytocin and dopamine into the region and then stop firing. They are like like try to release. So they're gonna try to release like uh, like in a really I I would say in a really precise way. So the reason why we develop these cage compounds. Is that we want to mimic the real uh, release pattern of oxytocin and dopamine and other neurotransmitters uh, in the in the brain, so that we can use light to control the activation of these uh, uh, receptors for the or certain neuromodulators, and then um, something we can do to is to study the function of these neuromodulators in some behavioral setting. As mentioned, uh, Katharina, we can study the maximum of like autism in to see if the oxytocinergic modulation is involved in, in autism. For example, we can deliver the caged oxytocin in the middle prefrontal cortex. Uh, and then try to uh, mimic the release pattern like of these oxytocinergic neurons in the brain and to see if we can modulate the autism-like behaviors uh, in, these, in these animal models. 
Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, it's really um, exciting. Um, does anyone have questions? Denise, Kirko, Joyce, Wizam, you joined the stage. Uh, please go ahead if you want to ask a question. Um, okay, I'll. Uh, is you guys can hear me right? Right? You you guys can hear me well. Yes, we can all hear you. Go okay. go for it. Okay. Okay. We're just all thinking. You know, there's a lot to think about, which is great. Go ahead, please. So I really like the the wireless optofluidic um, device uh, components that you. Um, so how deep can you go? Uh, like, what, what's the depth of um, the 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 delivery that you can go? And and did you try out how well it stays in place? Um, um, in you know when if you need to reach deep um, brain regions. Thank you. Yeah, that's a good question. So. For um, for our neural probe, um, it basically consists of um, um, uh, micro LED, um, microfluidic channel, um, and this micro um, LED is built on top of um, uh, a copper um, layer of polyimids, uh, a copper polyimid uh, sandwich, uh, a thin film, and then we laser cut it into um, into a specific shape uh, where we hope it to be for sure. Um, miniature enough that it would not damage um will have like a minimal damage to brain tissue and then um you can also um as a substrate to hold on to the micro ed and micro fluid channel so as for your questions about how deep you can go it, it can be customized into any length because we can just decide the shape that we want and we need to profile it into a specific shape so it can go into like a more shallow brain region um, like multi-cortex, is it shallow? It's like more shallow, yeah. And and then uh, deeper into the deep brain. So, so yes, it's totally customizable. Uh, customizable. And then for microfluid channel, um, so microfluid channel basically it's uh, it's a soft uh, polymer-based polymer uh, tube that um, that we made uh, where there's like a small channel within uh, this soft polymer. So uh, it can minimize. It's, it has low modulus. It can minimize. Um, the, the me mechanical mismatch between uh, the device and also um, the, the brain tissue, the soft brain tissue. So uh, in that case, with this microfluid channels, we can uh, deliver a drug with like minimal damage to the brain. Um, so with um, this microfluid channels, it's made from photolithography methods um, to build up the ch channel shape. And then finally, it's also defined uh, by laser profiling. Uh, so that's why it can be made into a very small size where it's it can it, it can have a, a width of only 50 to 100 micron so so yeah so that's um that's why it's like very small it's customizable it can go into a deep brain yeah that's wonderful that's really exciting and and i can so i saw that you have an led in the in the end did you also try out a string of LEDs that you can like program maybe in different patterns. Let's say you wanna activate <laughs> different depths or different brain regions along the way in different patterns. Would that be possible? That's a very good question. So with this, um, it's also possible that we can make a deep enough 
or a long tube, a long uh, probe with opening at uh, alongside at different heights of the probe. So um, it's pretty uh, straightforward to build, to design a microfluid system with different outlet locations. Um, for example, as a separations of like uh, one millimeter um, separating all across different depths of um, the, uh, the probe. And then uh, we can realize this uh, delivery, um, like a logic of delivering at different locations. And maybe um, we can program it into uh, with like a different time lapse. So we can deliver um, the first one at a shallow, a more shallow depth, and then uh, another one with like a deeper um, depth. So in the case, we can realize this um, this um, delivery of multi-location and, um, and multi-time points. Yeah, that's so interesting. And, and do you also, uh, can you record at the same time? Or maybe even have a mini camera um, at the same, because if you could, you could make an automated uh, feedback mechanism uh, if necessary at some point. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's a very very good um, idea. So um, there, uh, um, for sure, that's something that we want to build like future um, in our system with like a feedback with micro camera um, or further. It's also possible to build a sensor right on top of um, this device. So now it only has stimulation, but it doesn't really have like a sensing platform for the feedback system. So um, that's actually a lot of efforts have been put into building sensors uh, where we can integrate a system with um, stimulation and sensing um, at the same time. And um, it can definitely be a more powerful system for, um, for feedback control. Uh, this is something that's um, even uh, like my lab and also a lot of um, other scientists and other labs are working on. Yeah, I think that's something we are currently working on. Uh, we're currently working on the uh, electrical sensing and uh, uh, fluorescence sensing. So with these sensing modalities, we can uh, make the optogenetics in, uh, like we can make a closed loop optogenetics. If you detect a behavior event, like from the camera, if you detect some specific neural signal that is related to a type of behavior, then we can like use that closed loop system to manu manipulate neuronal activities uh, in, in that pattern. And we can artificially build uh, like connections between like different brain regions like through that closed loop system. Yeah, since we mentioned opening privacy, um, there also, um, I think a paper uh, is coming out um, probably like later in the year or next year. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's also a paper in the group which used, um, which is a dopamine sensor um, that can be potentially be built in with our system that uh, potentially we can uncage uh, dopamine and then, and then monitor the dopamine concentration and uh, in that case as a closed loop system to monitor the behavior of the mice. Could I yeah. Uh, ask a Yeah, I just wanted to say, now I remember, I couldn't remember our guest speaker. We had the guest speaker from um, uh, Professor Andrea Armani. She made this nano-sized molecular device capable of sensing and altering cells' bioelectric fields. I know she only tried it in like cultures, but maybe that would be a cool person to collaborate with. 
it was really impressive her talk um, i can share the paper if you guys are interested thank you uh, go ahead please i i just had a couple of technical questions um I, I was looking at the, the slide at the bottom of your presentation um with the implant implant implantation uh it looks like um you might be um you know making uh, holes in the in the uh, skull for where the probes are going to go down and, and you were talking about flexibility and the depth you can insert these i'm wondering about how much flexibility there is um, in terms of choosing which brain regions in particular i i work in the auditory cortex so i'm wondering about if it's flexible enough to try to approach the the temporal lobe auditory cortex uh, if nothing else from, from directly above. Um, and then just general questions about, uh, the, the surgery looks pretty straightforward, but I'm curious, uh, you know, how, you know, the success rate of, of surgeries, the lifetime of the probe and, uh, whether the device is reusable, uh, between mice, like it, it, having completed experiments in one mouse can then devices be reused in, in other mice? Uh, I think in terms of flexibility, we have two different types of design. So if you are targeting uh, uh, like a, the same brain region on two different hemispheres, we have this fork-like design that uh, the implantation is very simple. We can just hold the device and find the, and drill the hole on the bilateral side and try to insert the probe. And we have another design uh, that for more flexibility, we have this flexible design. Basically, the two uh, probes will be like separately connected to the device. So that way we can insert the like probe into different brain regions because they are not interconnected with each other. So you can try to target for more auditory cortex uh, with one probe and you can target maybe frontal lobe with one probe. It's just, uh, uh, I think the, it's just the choice for the specific uh, experimental setup. And we have also tested the uh, like precision of the targeting with this flexible probe, which is compared to it with a like fixed design. And we found that the targeting precision is quite identical for these two designs for uh, like, I think for experienced uh, experimenter, it, the targeting location is, uh, the tar targeting precision is quite similar, but it like other type of surgery, you need to get some uh, experience to really uh, get it work. But the overall process is quite simple, and we have a like protocol paper published, I think early this year to this uh, like for the surgical procedures, and uh, I think it, it will be helpful for a starter like to like do surgery like this. Yeah. Uh, so, sorry. Can you, can you give me a sense of what the that precision is? Um, and I'm, I can't tell from the image, um, just how wide the probe is. It does it, does it require a full blown craniotomy or do you, or can you just do like a, um, like a burr hole size kind of 
Yeah, we can do a blur hole. So okay. the dimension of the probe is is not. It's pretty similar to those fiber optics. I think okay. it's like three hundred millimeter, uh, three hundred micron in thickness. So it's like uh, yeah, that's pretty similar for a conventional fiber photometry or optogenetic fiber implantation. Okay, I'll be quiet after this, but uh, can you give me a sense of what the targeting precision is? So, uh, let me find, find the number, the paper. So, we compare it with the fork design, we just try to uh, compare the precision at two different uh, brain regions if you are targeting them at the same time or targeting them uh, separately. I think it's, it also depends on like the blur hole you, you drill, but I think the precision is within 100 micron. That's what I remember. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I believe all the speakers are included in the paper. Um, because I, um, yeah, I, I remember they're in the supplementary for the precision of the um, the probe is in, in certain. So, awesome. Yeah, so, I, I, um, I shared the paper with my lab. I'll definitely check it out. Thank you for answering my questions. Yeah, I think uh, for both of these uh, techniques, it's approximately 100, within 100 uh, micron like variation. Nice, yeah. Um, yes, I also want to answer the question uh, that you asked about the reusability of the device. Uh, so at this moment, because we're using Siemens uh, and uh, use Siemens to uh, secure the device and the Siemens can interfere with the, the soft microfluid channel. So if we remove the whole device, then um, the microfluid channels can get damaged. For sure, there's some improvements that we can do uh, in terms of um, securing the device so if that's the case then potentially we can reuse uh, reuse the microfluid channel uh, but in this case um we can re we, we can only reuse the the electronics parts of the device um but if we want to reuse the device then we would need to remove microfluid channels and replace the microfluid channel and also for sure uh, need to uh, clean up the whole device the, the reservoirs um sterilize and and all this stuff so so yeah that's the answer about the reusability Thank you, thank you. Um, I know you joined the stage and Kyoko and Joyce, if you have questions, just flash your microphone and Denise um, in the meantime. Yeah, go ahead. Anna. Yeah, hi, Katarina. Thank you very much. Um, great topic and uh, research. Uh, I have two questions. Um, and. The, um, the mice you used here, uh, do they change behavior uh, compared to other uh, beings in their surroundings uh, while they're being tested on this subject? And uh, what are the actual um, difference in between the, 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 the fluid water um, uptake, intake, um, and the, the behaviors uh, during this, uh, tests, uh, yeah, thank you. 
assume we uh, so uh, during the specific behaviors we're looking at, which is the rotational behaviors, uh, we don't see uh, much behavioral response generated in those animals that uh, did not express channel adoption, which means that the effect we're seeing is uh, option dependent and activity dependent. But I think for the daily routine of the animal, we usually single house them uh, after the surgery, so they kind of they recover pretty well from the surgery. Because for the body weight and fluidic intake, food intake, they are not significantly uh, different from those uh, wild wild type animals. I would say that uh, after uh, appropriate uh, pain management after surgery, there there these animals are. Quite uh, normal compared to the uh, animals without the, sur the, the surgery. Oh, thank you very much. Um, uh, just a follow-up question because we we have a tendency to see that um, what we're being exposed to, if it's blue or red light, it will affect how we behave and. Mm -hmm. Uh, hence the water uptake intake for example um so yeah i don't know you anything you want to add yeah yeah uh sure so yeah so that's uh that's a problem of using blue light so we're trying to switch to use red light instead because for uh, for mice they don't see the uh, the light at right, uh, relatively right wavelengths. So that part, uh, the red light won't affect animals' behavior, but blue light, if it's glowing inside the brain, uh, I'm sure that they'll, they'll see that blue light flash. But it really depends on what specific type of behavior you're studying. But I think the overall trend is to use uh, like right shaded uh, options to uh, to cook to cook uh for behaviors because there are like two advantage of that the first i mentioned that the animal don't see much of the red light and the second thing is that if you the red light can actually penetrate uh like more depth inside the brain it means that we can target a relatively larger group of neurons with red light and I think on the device side, we can uh, also increase the power of the right LED by a lot by introducing the capacitor bank, like to store some power, and we release it uh, when we need them, so the red light can, can be really really bright. So yeah, that's my the the direction we are we're moving, because there are like some concerns of using blue light. Very interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. I also saw uh, a lot of questions in the room chat. So um, I think we can also answer some questions over there. Um, I think the first question is Have you evaluated the effects of RFU on mice and is it used only when needed or always on? So um, for the effects of RFU, um, based on our study, we did not see any like, negative effects of the RFU on mice. Um, and since RFU is, is pretty common uh, in our daily life too for humans, we have our phone and uh, a bunch of RF signals um, everywhere. So 
yeah, so this for sure it's it's highly possible that there's a chronic effect, but since it's a short experiment um with our field only only on when it's needed. Um also that's the second question that you asked, huh? Um but yeah, so that we did not see any negative big bats on the mice. Um so that's the answer. Um and then uh Minjun, do you have any um answer or follow on on this uh, question? I I think I saw the the question in the uh, room chat, like how far away is the optogenetic from utilizing in human subject? I would say we still have a long distance to go, because the conventional way of uh like doing like optogenetic uh, in animals that we use virus to express op uh uh options in these neurons. That's gonna create some problem for the uh, translation, like to 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 human research. But I would say there are a lot of studies that are going on for like using optogenetics in non-human uh, primate animals, uh, like monkeys. I think there are a lot of efforts of putting on to like to make uh, optogenetic transla translate to like human studies, but I would say there are still a long, long way to go. Uh, but uh, I think this wireless neurotechnology may offer some solution to that, because for human research, for hu human application, we cannot expect to, to put some cable to the human subjects. But for wireless, it's gonna be a lot better. But still, we uh, it's not something that are ready to apply in human research. <laughs> yeah, I also want to kind of also I saw the comments over here. A crisis might help to sell it to the public. <laughs> yeah, it's really funny. Um, so I also want to follow up on this question about how far away is optogenetic um from utilizing human subjects. Um, as I remember, um, correct me if I'm wrong, I think there's already products uh, using optogenetic on eye um, therapeutic. So um, I think that's definitely a step forward. But I think for FDA approval of um, devices like optogenetic devices um, used in human subjects, even even electrical uh, stimulation devices, it's 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 been studied for like, what, um, 15, 100 years. And and it's still, um, if we're going to use in human subject, then that's a lot of evaluations uh, beforehand on, on not just mice, on uh, NHP um, to figure out if it's um, it actually have like any kind of side effects on humans. So um, so that, that's that's one of the reasons um, why um, optogenetics is, is um, it's, it's still a, a long way to go for optogenetics to be used on the human. And on the other hand, uh, optogenetics, um, it's um, it's using um, uh, genetic modulation and um, and introducing um, a gene into um, a neurons. That's that's um, that's that's a very sensitive topic. Um, that uh, um, it may potentially like, raise up a lot of questions about um, is it safe? Uh, is it going to be like um, other kind of side effects? Um, and is it going to be consistent? Is it going to be effective after um, certain years? Since um, cells uh, can also have, um, after um, probably um, one or two uses, um, the cells can 
can have like um response that has like a lesser response to the stimulation. So so yeah, a lot of questions about that too. Um, I guess yeah, I would say probably several years still, <laughs> maybe even ten years. If I can add, there are clinical studies to resort eyesight with optogenetics in humans. Um, they uh, use blue and yellow, so yellow light to inhibit and blue light to activate. Um, I haven't looked at them again, but um, they're ongoing for a few years now, maybe three years or so. Um, I was in a the first conference of um, applied optogenetics in Boston and there they shared already that they were starting um so but i haven't looked at it again so um yeah if so to restore eyesight it's per like it's pretty it's not deep in the brain so it's pretty low risk but to go deeper in the brain it's probably a higher risk but um yeah check those out if you're interested Hi, um, this is Joyce. Um, this is all very fascinating. And um, I don't know if you've mentioned this yet, but, um, you know, and I understand it is a long time frame. But is there any condition you have in mind that you think, um, you know, besides what Katarina just mentioned with the eye, that you think it's more likely to be used in sooner than perhaps other conditions? Anyway, thanks. I'm done. I think for a peripheral nervous system, it's going to be sooner than the central nervous system. I would say like for managing neuropathic pain, like for example, the spinal cord, it's going to certainly, because we have uh, like more knowledge uh, on the like spinal cord probability than the, uh, than the, than the brain, and we can uh, try to manipulate a certain circuit for that uh, gate control mechanism of pain, like try to suppress neuropathic pain, like in the spinal cord, or like try to suppress the neuronal activity in the dorsal root ganglion, uh, like this peripheral nervous system, like try to manage the neuronal activity acutely in that. In, basically, I, th I think in the sensory system, in the motor system, it's going to be faster than the, like, for example, emotional control or like things like that. Thank you. That's what, that, I'm, that's... That's what I'm thinking about. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So maybe it could be, you know, eight years for that versus 10 or 15 for the brain. Yeah. Yeah, there's also a question about what kind of lifetime does the probe have from Jared? So, um, so this is a good question because uh, for microfluidic channel, uh, we do have um, a lot of studies on how to reduce the, or there's a problem that the probe can get clogged um, because it's the reason is not really that clear to us if it's if it's a scar tissue or if it's um, there's some tissue got pushing into the microfluid probe during the surgery. So um, we suspect um, that the first one, maybe like the first reason, and we change the location of, um, of the microfluid probe uh, outlets to the edge of um, the, this probe instead of uh, right on the tip. And uh, since it worked um, pretty well, 
and preventing any um, tissues uh, directly going into the probe during the surgery. So that helps us in declogging um, the microfluid channels, um, so extend the lifetime of the probe. And uh, for scar tissue, on the other hand, um, that's something that we haven't figured out fully because for some mice, um, after the surgery, it seems like there's just less blood and less damage to the tissue, and then uh, it's just less a chance of clogging of the microfluid channel. Uh, but on some mice, um, it may just be more severe, um, probably due to the surgery process, um, probably due to the mice itself. Um, we're not sure about uh, that, so so that's that can um, affect the lifetime of the probe. Um, but at this moment, if the surgery is going well, and um, and if um, if for initial uh, one one weeks after the, after one or two weeks after recovery um, is working properly, then uh, the lifetime of the probe that uh, we have at this moment is up to uh, two three months. We didn't do any um, additional experiments more than two three months, so uh, not much been sure uh, what is the uh, longest lifetime. But yeah, that's um, the lifetime of the probe. I had a follow-up question on the probe. What is it composed of, the materials itself? Yeah, so uh, this probe is composed of um, three-layer um, polyimid, copper polyimid, um, for uh, controlling and for um, for um, giving electrical signal to microLED. Um, so that's the substrate, and it's encapsulated in um, perlene, um, it's perlene C. Um, and then on top, there's uh, um, it's a polymer-based uh, microfluid channel built of PDMS. Um, yeah, so those are the materials used. Yeah, thank you. And how far away has for the wireless one? How far away does the can the probe be for you being able to trigger it? You know, in case you have like more elaborate behavioral studies or overnight and so on, um, how close does the trigger have to be? Um, I think it, so. For this uh, version of device, we just trigger it uh, like using the like the. So we we can actually trigger the uh, behavior from like very very far far away. Like, just like using the computer, but the size of the experimental setup is a little bit limited for the reason of power transmission. I think we managed to, uh, uh, I think for 10 square feet, the that's probably the most, uh, the largest uh, environmental setup you can use uh, for now, and we, so for this platform, uh, the control sets may factory through the uh, the near field communication. But for the next generation of devices we're working on, we can use Bluetooth, like to control the devices, and so then it, be, uh, it will depend on the uh, distance for that Bluetooth communication system. So basically, it can be like several like meters away, like ten meters away. It's quite comparable with like normal Bluetooth connection, like for example, to headphone, like things like that, and we can actually control the device on on our portable devices, for example, cell phone. Okay. Thank you. 
like from uh, like relatively long distance that won't affect the behavior of the uh, animals. Yeah, so for near-field communication, it's more short distance and for Bluetooth, it's more long distance. So for near-field communication, normally it's um, it's it's actually built within the field, so the animals need to be be move. Uh, so animals can move within the RF field, uh, and then that that mean that that's that means that um, the field um, the the sizes of the fields is really important. So at this moment, yeah, as Mingjin just mentioned, um, zero to ten meter uh, will be the size for the um, NFC, and then for uh, Bluetooth, on the other hand, it's, it's uh, more long range, it's 10 to 100 meter. But on the other hand, Bluetooth require higher power operation. Uh, so in the case, we need to add battery for the system and it may, it may increase um, the, the weights and the size of the device. So there's some trade-off uh, over here depending on uh, what kind of experiments we may aim for. So, so yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, for things like sleep patterns, where you maybe want to modulate different factors of the circuitry uh, or social behaviors, I think that's really important to have these wireless devices and where you can have some range if you want to be more, um, yeah, just automated systems. I don't know if you ever saw them there are some companies that make this fully automized behavior systems where you kind of the the mice get monitored 24 hours all the time during different all kinds of behaviors uh, and um, so you get like 24 hour data which is really interesting um, yeah Joyce go ahead Did you unmute on purpose or you're just having a hot mic? I'm uh, sorry, I, I guess I unmuted on accident. Bye. I have a follow-up question. So in the lab, is that a radio quiet zone? Are you trying to uh, minimize interference with the wireless signals or is that does that not matter? Yeah, that actually um, matters. So, um, so it did have like a, a, a specific space, or it's more matters in terms of uh, communications of the wireless, uh, the uh, the antenna to um, our system. So, um, to 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 laptop in this case, but there's like a connector in between uh, the antenna and the. And, and the PC, there's some like uh, tuning channels and, and that's actually affecting by uh, other RF signals. So, so we do have like a specific space um, for the uh, animal experiments. Yeah, I think that matters a lot for sensing, uh, but for stimulation, I think it, it doesn't matter that much. Yeah, I think mostly it's just the showing of um, the, um, the the cage that we're using for communication that's yeah but yeah it's 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 not really um a bigger deal we can just improve the system um by like um improve the current setup that's built by uh neurolox this is a company um that uh professor rogers um established um 
and three years ago. Um, so it's it's building kind of like a connectors that's in between the RF antenna to the laptop. So um, so in that case, we can control the system um, by uh, writing our code in laptop, and then um, we can um, we can tune the RF signal by this uh, RF tuning box that they develop. And in that case, we can um, we can apply the RF signal to the antenna, uh, which is surrounded by the cage. But yeah. <laughs> So the cages are made out of plastic, probably. Yeah, it's acrylic. Yeah, it's acrylic. Makes sense. A metal would interfere to some extent with yeah, all yeah. this radio signaling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, does anyone have more questions? Because if not, I would. Maybe get back to ask um, one more time about the caged. Um, how precise can you be with the uncaging uh, in that system? Like, what's the the scale of precision? Like, not the temporal, more like how many uh, micrometers you can be triggering the the uncaging. It also depends on um, the concentration of the solution, and then also since uh, light illumination, we can change the power of um, the LED to change the light illumination. So in that case, we uh, for these kind of experiments, we can uh, do a pre um, uh, or like in vitro benchtop experiments uh, in hydrogel to um, to figure out the illumination uh, level and and with that and also the diffusions of the drug. Um, without system um, and with this combinations of um, um, uh, studies of diffusions of the of the drug in hydrogel and also the light illuminations within the hydrogels, we can determine uh, the distance um, or the effective distance of the drug in the brain. So in that case, we can also tune uh, the parameters of delivery duty cycle um, and the powers of LED, um, duty cycle LED. Um, so in that case, we can we can uh, tune to our uh, target um, distance. But of course, like in vivo experiments, maybe totally different. Um, not totally different, sorry. Maybe slightly different, um, but that will probably need like additional experiments. But there are just a bunch of um, studies on how to change a hydrogel um, into like uh, a matrix, which is more similar to 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 bring tissue um, for us. We're using agrigel, but then um, it's also possible that we can um, we can um, kind of um, cross-linking the gel into like a matrix that's more similar to bring tissues with textures, different kind of textures, and and we we can potentially um, study a little bit more about its diffusion, drug diffusion, and illumination throughout the texture uh, hydrogel. So that's pretty interesting subjects that people are working on too. I think for the spatial uh, resolution, it's not that high because that's a single photon caging experiment, not two photon caging. I would say it's gonna uh, uncage the compound, like yeah. Two hundred micron, like something like that. Is there any potential for this to be used as a treatment for folks with epilepsy? Yes, I think there is a like a 
there is a like paper that's currently under review about like treating epilepsy. So it's basically can introduce a closed loop system with the EEG sensing if the the sensing part detects uh, uh, like EEG signal that is like a seizure like so it can deliver some drug into the brain region that triggers the seizure to surprise the like the onset of the seizure. But it is still on the uh, pharmacology side. Got it, thank you. Um, uh, Jared in the chat asked, does scaling up from rodents mean you'll be able to add new features to the device? Yeah, that's totally possible. Um, by scaling up from rodents to, um, are you talking about like monkeys uh, and, and NHP and um, human? Um, so if that's the case, then potentially the device can be bigger, but on the other hand, the power required for um, for the functionalities um, for the simulations may be higher too. So that's something that we need to battle and figure out. Um, and that will be um, different questions in uh, the power budget and um, the, the size of um, the whole systems and what exactly um, kind of functionalities that we can add. Um, so like new features, it's, um, the question is what kind of new feature is it sensors is it a is it other stimulation um platforms like electrical simulations and and what other kind of feature sets that we're talking about and how we're going to manage the the power um and building the system in, in size so so yeah so that will be my answer for scaling up oh, i, I, just, I oh, think oh. for for small animal uh, it's actually harder than do it in a larger animal because in small animals the the space is quite limited so we need to make everything uh, miniaturized but for a larger animal i think we can make the receiving antenna larger so we get more power and we will have more electronics to control it and we can probably put a battery like there to like increase the power so I would say it's going to be easier to do it in larger animals than small animals. Doing it in mice is like really hard. Um, yeah, I think Einar wanted to ask again. Uh, did it work to bring him up? Einar, I invited you to speak in case you wanted to ask another question and um, yeah it's not working <laughs> okay in the meantime what is the operating frequency of the power transfer asked Benjamin in in the chat operating frequency meaning the uh, the R frequency or uh, if we're talking about RF frequency, it's 13.56 uh, megahertz. Um, if that's what you're asking for, uh, is it? Or it's are you talking about the operation frequency in terms of the frequency of like either LED? Okay. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Yeah, I saw the R frequency. Okay, nice. Uh, yeah, great. I know I'm, it doesn't work to bring Einar up. Um, does anyone have um, last questions? I'm not sure how much time you still have, uh, Yixing and Mingzeng, um, to answer questions because we already took more than an hour from your life <laughs> to do this. So. <laughs> yeah, it's so much fun. <laughs> it is fun? Oh, great. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I'm always happy to hear that, that uh, when the guest speakers also have fun and it's not just parasitic <laughs> relationship. Um, <laughs> um, I saw that um, you, your micro LEDs, so you're planning on switching to deep red light, right? Uh, like near infrared light, is, is that right? So you have uh, contracts, did you get contracts, like optogenetic contracts, maybe uh, from Peter Hegeman? I think he... I think worked... you, uh, I use crimson for uh, red shaded crimson R. So in theory, you could have both. Then, it, like you could have, and could you have an inhibitory and excitatory and different wavelengths? Like, uh, do you think that would make sense for your um, experiment setups? Because then you could have, if it's micro LEDs, you could have like strings of different lights, maybe. Yeah, sure. We can use blue light and red light. And I would say I slightly prefer to not use inhibitor option. I'll just, like for that purpose, I would express excitatory option in uh, inhibitory neurons instead for inhibition. So that's my <laughs> pr personal <laughs> preference, I would say. Yeah, that's interesting, um, I think, uh, to go that route. Because I think so many um, also disorders are very government-driven. Uh, um, and, and are you planning on maybe try out um, glia cells like astrocyte expression and modify? Because there's more and more research now pointing towards that the glia cells like oligodendrocytes, astrocytes in specific uh, play a huge role in different type of uh, disease states, um, including neurodegeneration, um, ALS, and so on. So it would be really interesting to look at that too. Thank you. Yeah, yeah it's definitely doable in clear cells. And we can, like with the fluidic system, we can express these uh, like chemogenetic receptors and use for example, CNO to change their like intracellular signal pathways. For example. Yeah, that's really exciting because you know if we do it pharmacologically the traditional way, we kind of I think most people inhibit gap junctions, but it's all over the brain and it can be really harmful and not have like generate inconclusive results. So to be more to achieve like precision with astro like glia cells, I think uh, would be really interesting. Um, and welcome Abyss to the stage. Um, did you have a question? Uh, hey Kat, hi everyone. Um, yeah, I guess I have 
uh, question, although like I joined into the discussion much, much later, uh, it's based on the question that you actually raised, which is um, what is the sort of like the advantage of using blue light? Of course, like at first, I would like to commend you that this is a, a very astonishing work. Um, but, and, and that being said, uh, my question would be, um, instead of using the blue light, which I think is kind of uh, typical for opto experiments, since you're using um, wireless uh, power transmission, um, why not focus on the red or, red or near infrared uh, spectrum to essentially activate your channel adopsins? Um, because one advantage that I could see is that um, First, the powers, um, the power required to actually induce red light would be far more smaller. And you have, um, and essentially you can access also a um, much deeper uh, level of tissue by using red and infrared. So I'm just, I'm just wondering, uh, that will be my question or comment if you like. Yeah, I totally agree that red light is a better option. And that's uh, what we are trying to like use, like use right now. I think from now on we will we'll like we we do prefer to use red light and red shifted options than like using like channeled options. Gotcha. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, if anyone has, let me check the chat again. Um, well, oh, I see Benjamin, you have a question. Um, let me try to invite you to speak. And Einar, I still couldn't bring you up. Um, Benjamin, it worked, but Einar, it's not working. Hi, Benjamin, maybe the last couple of questions. Hi, I Go enjoyed the article and I asked the question in the chat and I got an answer, so thank you. Okay, great. Um, Einar, I'm not sure why it's not working to bring you up uh, to speak, maybe. Oh, he's he wrote in the chat, are the mice being set up with the monitors as time, like the mice, the too weak to have a monitor? Um, so I guess, um, is it the question, Einar, to how the mice are being monitored in the meantime while the 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 virus like while the expression is going on in the brain of the virus is that what you mean in those two weeks yeah exactly is there a time difference in where uh, the, the the mice here are actually being adapted to be um uh, focused on with there's certain devices going on and optic uh, um, monitors. Um, uh, you know, is there a time span here with there are some uh, conscious related animal um, being fully set up into an experiment and some are uh, partially being set up uh, because they adapt it's all cautious beings. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I will let them recover for like for that virus uh, uh, for virus expression. I will give them some time to allow the virus to express. That's typically more than two weeks. 
so at that point, the animals are like adapted to the devices and uh, like recovered from the surgery. Uh, yeah. Although we can do it like for farm a photopharmacology experiment, we can do it faster, like maybe th three days after the surgery. But I would prefer to let the animal to recover a little bit more from the surgery and get used to the device before I'm doing a like behavior experiment. Although we can do it like as soon as three days. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. Do you see a difference in behavior after the experiment has been done? We typically don't don't monitor uh like be, be uh like behaviors after the experiment because we, we need to uh sacrifice the animal for histology and uh, other validations but i think for most of animals that we accidentally uh, leave on so they do not uh, behave much different than their like baseline level but I, I i've never monitored like a long time after the experiment because it's not like allowed by iCook so well it's an interesting question um Einer and there is lab there are labs that are interested in the ultra um sonic um communication between mice and also rats and uh for example a friend of mine, Marie Monfils, she's at Texas Austin University. She does a lot of research like that because she's looking into fear memories and extension memories and so on. And she did some experiments where they went through the fear memory, you know, Pavlovian fear conditioning, the rats, and then she checked if they warned the other rats in the colony of, of some... Um, you know, of some threat coming and uh, and she could then uh, see that the following rats, usually you separate them and soundproof and so on, but she, she did the opposite for those experiments and she found that they actually warn each other and the following rats that were kind of warned, they uh, would be, they would learn the fear conditioning faster and yeah, there's a lot of intercommunication with ultrasonic um, sound um, recordings and uh, so that uh, go, but they mostly focus on fear conditioning, which is, you know, quite stressful event, but uh, it's an interesting question. It's actually pretty straightforward nowadays to do that. They are like recording devices and uh, there are specific trained uh, neural nets to kind of analyze the data and it's pretty easy and straightforward to do it if people are interested in. So yeah, if you are interested in look at, at um, papers with like ultra, you know, with their, um, uh, that look into this uh, vocalizations of mice and rats and you should find something there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Abyss, you, you had the last question, or did you want to comment? I saw you on my... Yeah, um, 
it's probably like a, a last question. Um, so I, I noticed that you actually kind of offboard the um, signal processing to a computer through the bidirectional um, data transfer that you had. Uh, is there any chance that you're looking into doing on-chip kind of data processing? And if so, if there if there are, um, if you're actually considering um, um, algorithms or basically like you know um, programs that can essentially uh, utilize low power, given that your source will be uh, radio frequency at this point, I'm just curious. Yeah, I think so. The the on-chip processing is definitely uh, will be like faster. It's definitely like something we're currently working on. Uh, I think for the uh, the closed loops closed loop system we're talking uh, about, so it's still not the on-chip processing, but I would say like. It, it depends on the sensing modality, like what what is the sensing modality we're using? Because if it's uh, electrical sensing for uh for vivo e phase experiment, it requires a, like a high like temporal resolution. So I think for that purpose, like the on chip processing is definitely better than like doing it like with a bidirectional bidirectional communication. But I would say for but relatively like other neural signal, for example, EEG and maybe calcium transient. So the temporary, the temporal resolution requirement is not that high. Probably doing it with uh, the computer would be easier to do. Yeah, I would say for a device perspective, um, for now the on-chip um, on processing is going to consume um, a, 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 a large amount of um, power at this moment, even though we use NFC. Um, we, if we want to do um, micropump um, simulations plus like, the micropump delivery, the optical simulations at the same time, plus the on-chip processing, um, we probably need, definitely need like, um, further developments um, into how to manage the budget, like the power budget at this moment. But yeah, in the future, for sure, um, this is something that would happen in debate analysis in, but in the future, um, for sure, yeah, it's, it's, it's possible. Thank you. Mike, over to you, Kat. Well, thank you so much for uh, presenting this amazing work and technology um, and explaining it um so well and answering so many questions of ours i hope maybe you'll come back one day when maybe you have um update or something um new that you can share with us that would be really wonderful this was a great honor to have you here both of you and um we wish you all the luck, although I don't think you need it, <laughs> all the luck and funding to continue doing the work that you wish to do and, and um, out of curiosity and doing good in the world. Uh, it's always um, it's always beautiful to see people that they use their brain for the good of humanity. So thank you for doing that. And uh, 
yeah, we wish you all the best and happy weekends. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Ron. Thank you. Okay. Uh, yeah. Have a great weekend, everyone. And uh, we'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you.